Welcome to the first live restart radio show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance FM. Uh, this is a different show because, unlike most, um, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. Um, the Restart Project aims for a shift in behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. And our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter uh, from The Restart Project, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by Dave Pickering, our podcaster storyteller. Hello. And Ben Skidmore, a volunteer electronics repairer with the Restart Project. Hi. <laughs> um, in this episode, we're going to have a chat with Ben about some of the recent repairs he's helped people with during our uh, community repair events, which we call Restart Parties. And then we're going to discuss some of the latest electronic news, but never fear, it's going to be different than most. Uh, it's going to be a discussion through our lens of um, interest in sustainability and a better relationship with electronics. So um, Ben is a regular volunteer with a background in guitar repair and an electronic engineering student. Hi, Ben. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you're so interested in repair. Hi. Um, I've always liked taking things apart. And since I was a kid, I've just uh, opened things up when I can. A screwdriver's always in my pocket. Uh, so as I got older, that naturally moved towards finding things that were broken and making them work again. And it seems to have been a useful enough skill that I've found ways to, to help others and, and to, to give back with it. Yeah, and um, you've probably been repairing with us for over a year and a half, I would say. I think we met you in Brixton. It was a September, so it's two years. And it, oh, uh, it was years. at the, the magic restart party where we fixed everything. <laughs> That's right. You must have had a role in that. Um, so you were at a recent uh, restart party with us in King's mm. Cross, and we thought we might go through some of the things that you helped with. Um, they were quite classic problems mm. people have with their gadgets. And probably if you're listening, you may have had one of these problems. So... Ben, take us through, what was the first gadget you worked on? Yeah, the first one was someone uh, had been travelling and his phone had died. So in the heat of the moment, he'd had to get a new phone. So he said, oh, it's been broken for a year or two. It doesn't switch on at all, but it charges. Uh, but I've got another one, so I don't really mind if we get it working or not. So um, in the end, we couldn't get it working, but uh, I guided him through the, the fairly complex disassembly, how to actually get into this device and see what was going on. And uh, he felt that he'd learned a lot and uh, and had more of a relationship with uh, the things that you know we all own. Yeah, I noticed that you. Um, I think you had to like to actually disassemble it. You had to somewhat break the assembly, like the outer assembly, the shell of the phone. Yeah, so. one of the real challenges with modern mobile devices is the way they're put together. There's tiny screws, hidden screws, uh, catches that you can't get to. Sometimes you even need special tools. So, in this case, we actually had an extra challenge, which was uh, kind of a metal piece that was glued down, and ultimately we couldn't find out how to get that apart. So it was damaged right. while we opened it up. And it must have been a fairly obscure model of Android because oftentimes you can find this information online. You can, like, someone has made a video or can show you how to do it. Yeah, it was an older Motorola um, that I think was over-engineered. It had metal trim and glass and plastic, um, but not a popular model. So, okay, yeah, not well, much information. We kind of depend on the, the community of, for information on these things. 
Right. And then the second one I, I really sympathize with, and I think everyone's had this problem. Um, it was a guy who's, um, he, he did blame his girlfriend, I think, um, whose girlfriend allegedly had um, dropped the her his tablet or their tablet while it was charging and um, and basically had damaged the micro USB port mm. in the tablet. And that's a classic. We see that in so many devices. So what did you try and do there? And what was the solution? Um we, we had it opened. It was relatively easy to open. And it, I should say it was a popular brand of e-reader. And he seemed to be quite confident in opening it and, and finding out how to do that without damaging it. Um, and the cable that led to the charging port was a really simple component that you could just pop off and replace in, in five minutes. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't find any parts. So we had to try and resolder the connections. But the scale of it was so tiny. Uh, we had about five wires in three millimeters that we, we just couldn't get it soldered. Uh, so he now can repair it if he can get access to the parts. I see. Yeah. So there is a limit to what we can do um, in a community setting. So this event, for example, was taking place in a community center in King's Cross. And um, it's kind of hard to do that fine soldering, isn't it? Mm. Um, just in a spontaneous pop-up event. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a role for professionals in this in the situation, right? I mean, I, I would assume. But talk about, do you think that anyone would actually take on that kind of repair in an affordable way as a professional? Um, um, I, I mean, I'm in that position that at home I have the tools and the expertise to do fairly complex repairs. And I do for me and for friends and family. Whether it would be something you would take as a commercial service uh, and, you know, believe that you could make a fair profit back, it might not be so possible, um, yeah. especially when you consider that these electronics are generally built by robots on the component level. So while yeah. it can be made the first time, to repair it by hand is actually harder than just to, to build a new part. Yeah. Uh, so the real onus here is is on why can't we get this tiny, small component that would be an easy repair. So, oh, you're saying that it's, that's impossible to source online or just very obscure part and he has to kind um, of go out and find it in some strange online store? I believe you could find it online. Okay. We couldn't find it in half an hour of searching. Uh, okay. More popular things, uh, more popular products often have parts available because more people are breaking them and want to fix them. Um, but uh, it's usually not from the manufacturer. They're usually uh, third-party mm. made. They may be cheap or inferior components as well. Yeah, that's really frustrating, I mean, especially with the e-readers because um, it's really not necessarily the kind of thing you ever really need to upgrade or mm. it should be something you just buy and use, you know, and they do more or job. less indefinitely. Yeah, and we see a lot of smash screens with e-readers too and we kind of just blink and think, not sure it's it's possible, but mm. not sure it's worth the effort. And um, Dave, you were also at a restart party. Usually you're documenting them for us, but you, I saw you got some help with your laptop. Well, that's what? right. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, normally what I do at restart parties at the moment is come along and bother everybody by trying to record them and for our podcast. Um, but... Uh, Partly because of the podcast and partly because of all of the rest of the freelance work I do, uh, the fact that my computer is being slower and slower and slower and just uh, not not doing anything I need it to do has becoming increasingly more and more problematic. So, yeah, I did ask at the restart party if my if my computer could be added to the board uh, of, of things that were being mended. Um, and it was. I mean, it was uh, it wasn't fully mended necessarily, but I know I know how to make it better. And it was my first experience of basically I mean, it was really stressful, actually. 
actually like seeing my computer being taken apart and going like that's my livelihood and now it's in pieces and uh, all of the screws are coming out and that's what's inside my computer and that's what it looks like and that would be interesting if it was somebody else's thing you know normally I'm <laughs> yeah. like oh they're mending their thing and, and there's no stakes for me but this time it was big stakes um and yeah it was really I guess it was very it was empowering in the end like to have seen that to to know that I can take it apart and it doesn't destroy it. So just so our listeners understand you were probably taking apart the laptop to give it a clean to see if it was too uh filthy inside right. and it was overheating or well, yeah. The, that's right. Well, the filthiness of the actual outside of the computer, which was very filthy, I, I apologise to admit, but uh, made 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 the restarter think that it would it would be worth uh, cleaning inside. But actually, when we opened it up, it was very clean inside. So, right. so uh, my, my my messiness outside is doesn't it doesn't uh, equate to a messiness inside the computer. So I was kind of pleased about that. But okay, it, so this is a really common problem for people. So yeah. so if it's if it wasn't the um, slowing down because of overheating and dirt inside, it was probably then related to the way you were managing the machine software yeah. related. So what lot, did you learn there? A lot of it's to do with probably the way that I'm managing it software in in, in terms of software. So I'm going to do some work on that and mm-hmm. defrag it. And uh, take off any programs that I'm not using, but but the real kind of uh, boon I got from that restart experience was that uh, that, that, that we added some more memory, um, and we we just did that. That just happened that day. Like I didn't like because you guys had had some spare memory uh, to, that we could try, and it's just is as simple for that particular laptop as plugging in some more memory. And I didn't didn't really know that was an option to me, and now I know I can do that, and also that I can replace the uh, the whole drive, the whole disk inside with a better one with more yeah. more memory and I don't have to throw away my laptop and get a new one that's better I can just upgrade yeah. the insides well, that's and I didn't something, really know that before yeah I think that we're really losing touch with that I mean I mean those of us who came up I guess those of us who are about my age like so <laughs> let's just say in their 30s remember when um when you could upgrade computers you know personal mm. computers at home it was a thing you upgraded a computer you upgraded a laptop i think what i see is with um younger generation is that we have such sl- uh, sleek and sealed devices um that are literally not uh manufactured to be upgradable like tablets mm. i mean my nephews are growing up with tablets and they don't they're actually not possible to upgrade um the iphone also, for example, not possible to upgrade. Mm. Um, and so I think we really need to do a lot to kind of recover the culture of upgrade yeah. and um, and maintenance. So as part of the stuff you're talking about is actually just maintenance. It's kind of having a less passive relationship with the machine. Right. And um, we always say this is about data as well. So when you were so nervous and your laptop was out on the operation table, <laughs> you shouldn't have been nervous because you should have a very um, rigorous system for backing up your data. But we notice a lot of people have a passive relationship with even their own precious personal data. So many of us learn the hard way after we uh, accidentally wipe a disk or a hard drive or knock a terabyte terabyte drive off a table. I did that and I was like, everything I had, just gone. (laughs) And and you do it once and then you might learn uh, backup, invest in backups, invest time in it too. Um, I learned the hard way. Uh, so maybe we could do something to to make people realize that uh, you know that could be your baby photos or yeah. it could be all of your tax return 
<laughs> well, and, our, and on our disclaimer at our events, we say remind people that they take responsibility for their data and their device. In other words, mm-hmm. it's not just um, the actual physical uh, wholeness of your device. It's that um, you need to take responsibility for the data part of it, too. Um, I think we should move on to talk about some of the latest tech news. Um And as I said, it's not going to be the usual conversation about isn't this company great or that product great. Um, And this conversation about data reminds me of um, a lot of people are quite dependent on Apple and Mm. their um, and their backup system for their personal data. Um, And we heard, you know, as usual, there was an event last week. I, I believe they're called Apple Events now. It's even a hashtag. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we obviously watched that with a little bit of skepticism. Um, but what we did, uh, what we were most interested by in terms of the news out of the Apple event last month um, was actually this notion that uh, Apple will start to sell iPhones in the U.S. for a monthly fee. And at first, we didn't really understand whether this was a leasing uh, arrangement because they talked about replacing a phone um, during a two-year contract. And this is all very intriguing. But um, but actually, it is not a leasing uh, model. The the um, in, in essence, it is a, it's a debt contract, a two-year contract that they're asking people to enter into um, with, a, I guess, an inflated um, monthly rate, but that it takes into account a very um, complete customer care uh, program, which they're calling uh, Apple Care Plus, meaning if you drop the phone, you smash the screen, at any time during your two-year contract with Apple, you get the you get the works, you get the screen Because, of course, Apple Care, as standard, doesn't cover screen repair, does it? Yes. And we've heard, and this is an interesting piece of news, because obviously they're taking on the mobile providers in some way. Right. But also, um, yeah, it seems that they're getting very serious about... Um, about repair. Um, we've heard some criticisms, though, of the repair service, just from you know anecdotal criticisms about how quickly it goes and whether it's really as good as some of the private alternatives. What are your thoughts on this idea, Ben, that Apple is going to become a kind of, um, well, one-stop shop in every single way? In a way, it could be nice. Uh, the idea that you are buying into a quality product with a quality uh, after service is is great. And, and, you know, paying for good service is something people do. We don't all buy the cheapest thing. Sometimes we buy for quality. Um, but the question is, firstly, are they going to deliver? And consistently, because as you say, I've, I've got friends who have walked into an Apple store and had a, a replacement within five minutes when they weren't covered for one. And I've had other friends uh, get no help whatsoever, not even over the phone for advice. Um, so you'd, you would want it to be a consistent product and service. But then the question is, does that start pushing out both the networks who are delivering data and, and calls and the repairers who, who might have their own uh, economy going on? Yeah. Um, and the other question for me that it raises is and especially this idea that um, that Apple will throw in a, a free upgrade one year through this contract. So this is the other interesting aspect of it is that they've said, OK, so you come in now for your uh, Apple, what are they calling them? iPhone 6S? Is that yes? And um, let's imagine that a, a year down the road, there's another model of iPhone. If you go, if you sign up for the contract now, they will actually replace your phone a year down the line, halfway through mm. the two-year contract. And on some level, that's interesting for you know the, the, the tech-obsessed. But 
from a restart perspective, we start to think, wait a minute, mm-hmm. this is actually potentially um, accelerating the upgrade cycle by an, by a full year. Yeah. In other words, and, and and we're really interested in this issue of the upgrade cycle. Right. I mean, as far as I understand it, people are, are actually upgrading their phones less frequently, which is great in a way, like for sustainability, for, for, for carbon footprint, all of those kind of things. But 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 that's, that move by Apple does sound like it's going to increase the amount that we're upgrading. Yeah. Um, and that's that's bad for all of those things that, that it was previously good for that we're slowing down on. Yeah. And one of the reasons we're so concerned with the upgrade cycle is something that it's very invisible to the majority of us. It's the idea that that um, there are all these hidden um, hidden resources embodied in every single device. The idea that um, when you manufacture something far away in China, um, water and carbon and energy go into its production. And even if we close the loop, as we call it, even if we recycle every single device as they're upgraded, um, we've still, what we've done is we've accelerated the manufacturing uh, cycle, and that just means more carbon uh, pumped into the atmosphere and um, more water that needs to be recouped. To be fair, Apple's doing quite a bit of work on water, but on carbon, um, there's some concern. And um, there's a piece that um, geographer Josh Lepowski published uh, uh, last week on a blog called Discard Studies, and we'll share the share the links um, online. It's called Bigger, Better, Faster, and More, Breaking the Taboo of Production. And Josh Lepowski basically um, draws attention to something we've already mentioned, but that the carbon footprint of the iPhone is ever increasing with every model, Um, the carbon footprint in manufacture, meaning that the the acceleration of the um, upgrade cycle has real carbon consequences. And he kind of questions how is it that we can just uh, rest easy with recycling if we know that we're increasing uh, carbon emissions with manufacture. This is the invisible side to um, modern devices being touted as greener and using less energy, uh, is that uh, most people maybe don't know that as a rule of thumb, uh, a portable electronic device like a laptop or a phone, uh, more than half of the energy used in the cycle of producing, using and recycling is actually in production. So as soon as you buy that phone, half the carbon dioxide or the carbon footprint of the device has already been used, uh, which means every time you buy a new device, you're, you're making a big impact. So uh, this race for the newest thing uh, is going to have an impact that outweighs that lowered energy consumption while using the device. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of really progressive voices on the area of repair in the United States, a lot of uh, companies that are pressing for the right to repair and kind of a DIY movement. But as it's the United States, there's it's there's not yet this discussion about the climate impacts of our of our consumption and and, and the but in the positive climate impacts of repairing and using things for longer. So I think I think I hope that we'll get there. Um, but I think this issue of the hidden uh, climate impacts of manufacture of electronics is still really far from the public public eye. Yeah, I mean, it blew my mind, really. I mean, because I've, I've been making the podcast for Restart, like that people can listen to uh, online if they want to check it out. And the most recent one was about uh, was about this very topic about shadow shadow impact is what, like people, which is a very evocative term, I like it, um, that people use about it. And I just had no idea that, 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 that so much of the carbon footprint and the water footprint and all these other things that I hadn't really thought about was in the production stage. Like it's still, every t- I feel like I need to sort of like repeat it all the time yeah. 
as a mantra just to remember that that it doesn't really matter in, in some ways if I keep using the phone it just matters if I upgrade it constantly mm-hmm. that's what's really causing the damage yeah. and and that's that stuff was really really fascinating to me and I think very few people do know it. it's definitely something I, I'm enjoying sort of at gatherings of my friends revealing uh, it's definitely like a, a fun thing to go oh look here's the reality um, but it's obviously not that fun when you actually really consider the actual reality of what that is and what that's doing yeah another thing um, that we we've started to um, to remotely uh, go into classrooms um, using uh, video online and one of the things that um, we notice uh, that uh, teachers and students are quite interested in are the minerals, you know, all because there's been a lot of talk of the conflict minerals and all the minerals in our in our um, small gadgets. But one of the things that's ignored about what they call rare earth minerals, which are actually not that rare, is that they're they're quite intensive to mine. They're quite and they require like a lot of um, earth moving. It's 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 a very um, uh, mechanically intensive process, but also they're not very easy to recycle. Um, there doesn't really exist um, the, the recapture f- uh, facility, the rec- material recovery facility for those minerals. So what it means is we're having the the miners are going into more and more communities, countries, um, and having to tear up the earth um, for these for these rare earth minerals. Um, and that's something that's quite important to bring to people. That again, clo- we can't close the loop entirely. And even if we do, we need to think about all the other emissions and consequences. Um, and the last thing I thought we'd talk about um, this week in terms of tech news um, actually came out at the end of August. It was kind of the, one of the deadest um, uh, news cycle moments. But it was this report that said, essentially, um, it's a report um, uh, by um, a project looking at countering illegal e-waste trade. And um, what... It really ran counter to a lot of stereotypes. Um, the report revealed that only one third of uh, electronics are properly recycled in Europe. In other words, they're they're properly dealt with um, to deal with all the dangerous materials and toxic materials in the electronics. Um, but n- but the other two thirds does not necessarily get exported to some exotic faraway place that we're plaguing with our electronics. In fact, a- a- about a third of it ends up in landfill here. In other words, people are sending electronics to landfill, and a third of it is dealt with, uh, another third roughly, or um, something like that, is dealt with through informal means, um, either abroad or here here in Europe. And it really f- raised some questions for us. I mean, we obviously think of recycling as the, the last resort. It's the last port of call for your device. It's the end of your device's life after it's been repaired, <laughs> reused, right? Yeah. Um, but it's true that instead of thinking from from uh, of criminalizing um, this behavior of, of not recycling, we need to think about why people don't recycle. Um, and, you know, why do you think, Ben, people don't recycle? Well, the first question to ask is, uh, you know, do people realize that uh, you can recycle a, a laptop? Uh, it, it can be taken apart for its raw materials. You can reclaim metals and and other things. Uh, a lot of people look at it and they go, well, you know, that, that can't really go in the recycling. It's not paper or plastic or or tin. But uh, there are places and processes to break it down and reclaim some of its raw materials. So maybe people don't actually realise something with a circuit board is recyclable at all. Yeah, I think that's really true. I'm not sure that... Like, I think I knew that, like... 
before I came to and started working with Restart, I think I knew that. But I don't think I knew it for for a while. Like mm. I think there was definitely a big chunk of time I didn't know you could recycle those things. And there's definitely been times when I've not recycled uh, mechanical stuff that I think I should have done now in hindsight and wish I had. And I don't think criminalising my behaviour would necessarily be the way to, to change that behaviour. Yeah, have you ever noticed on the back of the electronics, um, like on the back of your laptop, it has that wheelie bin that's crossed out. So right. basically it tells you exactly mm-hmm. what you should not do but it doesn't actually tell you what you should do. Right, it doesn't and tell so, you how. Yeah, and how many times have we had people come to our events with something that's been kept in a drawer mm. or in a closet, and it's quite common to hoard electronics, broken, um, electronics. broken electronics, or even just um, just stuff that people have kind of lost the use of, they mm. don't want anymore. Um, we really think that it's, a, you know, there's a lot. There's a real lack of trust around recycling generally. I would say, though, I mean, how many people have you heard who say, "Oh, you know, that um, that recycling that I put in the bag in a in a bag on the curbside, they just burn that or throw it away." Or there's a there's a in a sense there's a lack of transparency. People don't exactly they don't have a mm-hmm. notion for what recycling is, what it looks like, what it results in. Um, and have you ever seen? Um, Images of the centrifuges where they break the stuff or the shredders where they shred electronics is really fascinating to see. And it is kind of mind blowing that they can take apart um, uh, these gadgets and recoup raw materials from them. I think um, we're, we, we would advocate for, you know, much more use, uh, user centered, citizen centered approach. So instead of just the wheelie bin crossed out. Tell us where we should go, right? Uh, Tell us what we should do. Well, yeah, would the would the green point be a, a valid symbol? Everyone recognises the triangular three arrows that means this material is recyclable. Mm. And maybe that's enough. Right, when that, I s- that's definitely a better way of doing it because I didn't, like, the, the wheelie bin with the cross out, it's, it's not clear, like, you put your recycling in a wheelie bin as well, often, like in London <laughs> you do, right? Yeah. So that's kind of a mixed message right there. Like, we, it should be, yeah, the positive side of it. This is recyclable, mm. not do not... Well, another thing we point out, um, and we wrote a blog post about this, is that actually um, in most of Europe, you've already paid for the disposal of your device at purchase. Um, There's a there's a law called the WE directive. So it's the direct directive that um, legislates recycling of electronics and um, and it's implemented differently in every member state. But most places um, you are paying for the disposal of your device. Um, uh, when you pot, when you buy it, so we were thinking it would be really interesting for people to see that on a receipt, for example, to, for them to get a reminder, you know, just so you know, uh, it's a bit like service at a restaurant, you know, so, or or a reminder either it, it it has been paid or it hasn't been paid, um, and we think that it's just very hidden from us. Like even when you take it to the recycling center, you drop it in something, and you have no mm. idea what happens to it. Um, so there's so much more that can be done from a citizen perspective. Um, I um, I think uh, we're going to uh, wrap it up here. I want to make a couple of announcements. Um, this is our first show. Um, uh, we'll be, we have a couple of interesting events coming up where we'll be discussing a lot of these uh, issues and more, um, including um, a panel at the London Design Festival. That will be... Um, 
on Wednesday, September 23rd from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Makerversity, which is in Somerset House. And the panel is called Design and Repair Practices to Reduce the Environmental Impact of Our Gadgets. And we'll be joined by um, Fairphone, which is a fascinating project out of Holland, to uh, essentially to make the mobile more transparent, fairer device. Um, and a London-based repair company called Love Phone. And we'll be discussing a lot of the things we talked about here, um, how things can be designed to be repairable, used for longer, um, and also just bringing more attention to uh, what goes into the manufacture of these devices. Um, we'd also encourage you to look out for Fairphone's own events at the London Design Festival. Um, you can catch them um, uh, the weekend after. Um, and they'll, they'll be showing their new device. Um, they'll be helping people uh, learn to fix. Um, we'll be there alongside them. So I'd really encourage you to look at Fairphone's events during London Design Festival. And um, we'll be back um, with our weekly show here, live uh, every Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. Um, and um, you can find us in the meantime on the, on the web at therestartproject.org or Twitter at Restart Project and on Facebook as well. Um, thanks for joining us and um, we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>